The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Pray with me. Lord, spoke through your prophet Isaiah. You told us of a time when a word would go out and call everyone to bow the knee to you. And you called people then and call people today to turn to you and be saved, to bow the knee to you and know your righteousness and your grace, your saving work in their lives. You spoke of that 700 years before you brought it to pass. Father, I pray this morning that you would cause us in our hearts to revel in what you have done. Bringing your name to earth, putting him in flesh, and making a way for us to be saved. Cause us to see that and to revel in it, and then to deeply within us strongly desire to bring honor to that name. And not to denigrate it. Do that work in our hearts, Father, Son, and Spirit. Lift up your name. Exalt it. And cause us to be worshipers of Him. To His glory and for our good, I pray this. Amen. I am named after my great-great-great-grandfather, Stephen Clark. And my great-great-great-grandfather was one of the co-founders of the small town within, uh, which, within which I grew up, a town of 900 people at the time in central Illinois. So my family had been there from the very start, and everybody knew us. Those of you who have grown up in small towns know what this is like. Everybody knows everybody, especially those who have been there forever, and everybody has a reputation, which in large part is built by the previous generations. They're the ones who made the reputation, and then they give it to the next generation to hold on to it, to care for it. And so I grew up from from the very earliest days knowing that I had a name to uphold. It mattered what I did with the Clark name. It mattered to other people who held the Clark name. Even It seemed even to my great-great-great-grandfather who had already died. I wasn't quite sure how he still cared about it, but that's definitely the impression I got. That it mattered to him and to all of them and to those of us who were alive, and it would matter to those who were coming. What I did with the name, because other people who looked on determined 
what they thought of my name, what they thought of the Clark name, based on how those who bore the name bore it. Was this an honorable name? A name you could trust and depend on and confide in? Did you want to put this name in a position of authority or responsibility? You want to elect him to the school board or the county, the county directorship? Mayor, maybe. Was this a name that you wanted to do business with, that you wanted to marry your daughter to? All those questions were answered for other people as they looked at those of us who carried the name and they figured out, who are you? What do you do? What do you like? That's what the name is. Linked to us who bore it. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We turn to the third commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Not the importance of upholding our own personal family names, but the importance of upholding and honoring our spiritual family name, the name of the one who has called us to himself, has adopted us into his family and placed his name on us, and who, above all things, is worthy of being honored and worshipped and must not ever be diminished or denigrated. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be His name. That's what we're going to consider this morning in Deuteronomy. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the, the foundation of the Ten Commandments, and then we've looked at the first two commandments, all of which were concerned with proper worship of God, what's fitting for us as His people living here in God's world. And the third commandment today continues on in that theme. So we're going to be elaborating on how we are to appropriately interact with Him. But to set the context... I'm going to read, I'm going to start back at that verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 6, and read all the way through, though we're only going to be looking at verse 11 this morning. So let me read the text, Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 6, moving towards verse 11. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's the text of the day, and obviously it's a very short one. Just a sentence or two. Brief command and a vague allusion to punishment for breaking the commandment. We're going to spend the bulk of our time working on how this applies in our lives. Before we go there, we need to figure out what the commandment actually means, what it says. To take something in vain... If you're familiar at all with that phrase, it's probably from this context. It's just not a, a phrase that we commonly use in, in life today. We have vanity mirrors in our cars or bathrooms or dressing rooms. But if, if you're mentally connecting this statement about vain to something about beauty or appearance, it's not really what we're talking about. In its basic form, the word translated vain in, in most of our English translations 
carries the meaning of emptiness or falseness, nothingness. In fact, the word is used down again in the ninth commandment, down in verse 20, about you shall not give false witness. Same word there. Obviously, it's talking about lying, but it presents this, this lying witness as an empty, meaningless, purposelessness. You can't trust it. It's hollow. There's nothing there. There's no substance. It's false witness. That's what the word vain is about. We are not to take the Lord's name and use it in vanity or to present it as if it is vain. Don't muddy the Lord's name. Don't dirty it by making it appear to lack substance or worth or value. By making Him appear to be empty and meaningless. We must take care with that. Because biblically speaking, the name of the Lord is His person. It's His being. And we must not denigrate His being. A name, on the one hand, a name is just letters collected in a certain order. If you put the letters B-I-L-L together, you have a part of a duck, you have a paper that's a part of a financial transaction, or you have a person. Some people here in this room, I'm sure. But what happens as you put those letters together and you pronounce them is that they get attached to a person such that you cannot separate them. It's critical that as we think about the name Lord, that we realize that everywhere that we say that name Lord, we're, we're speaking of God. God Himself. In all of our thinking and speaking, whenever we say that, we're, we're reminding people of Him. We're bringing Him into a situation. And we are forbidden from dirtying Him. From diminishing Him. Now, the primary context in which the original audience would have heard that command, you should not take the Lord's name in vain, back in their original context, they existed in a place where many people believed that the, the actual names of gods had power, and so they would bring in a god and they would stick him on something that they wanted to either enhance or, or certify. Maybe it was a treaty or a, a magic spell. You add God's name to it and now it makes it strong. Or now it makes it true. So the temptation would have been to take our God, the Lord, and let's stick Him on to something, like a prayer maybe. Or some sort of a, of a business plan. Let's put His name over our shop. And He's saying, don't you, don't you, dirty my name by wantonly attaching it to all the stuff of your own imaginations and your own lives. Don't do that. Don't make me appear to be vain. That's what he's after. That's what he's talking about. So we're looking at the third commandment. The issue at hand is reverence and worship or dishonor. And denigration. It is not about swearing. Now, swearing might be a little part of it, but I think sometimes we only think that don't take the names Lord in vain means that don't swear saying Jesus Christ or God. That's not what we're talking about. A little bit, yes, but it's much larger than that. 
We are barred from using God's name in any way that is improper and therefore diminishes his reputation. And conversely, this is with all the commandments, where one thing is forbidden, another thing is commanded. We're forbidden from diminishing him, we are commanded then to exalt him. To worship him and bring him honor. To pray and to live so that his name would be hallowed. That is regarded as holy and revered here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's being taught here. So what we're going to do for the rest of this morning is kind of unpack these two things. What we're forbidden and what we're commanded. How we are forbidden to diminish his name and how we are commanded to exalt and worship his name. Those are my two observations this morning. Let's start with what we are forbidden from doing and unpack that a little bit. Here's my first main point. Take care that God's name not be diminished because of you. Take care. Be very careful and thoughtful that His name, that is His being and His person, not be diminished, insulted, dishonored, belittled, be made to seem as a joke, as empty, because of how you live or how you carry yourself or how you talk, what you say about Him, how you present Him. We must not present Him as anything less than the great and glorious and good and gracious God that He actually is. It's the main issue. Remember the foundation of these Ten Commandments. He says at the very beginning, He reminds them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and delivered you out of slavery. He is the I Am. The ever-present, always-existing, eternal One who spoke everything, everywhere into existence. He is the high and exalted One who sits on a throne in heaven. He will wrap everything up and bring it to conclusion and call it all to account in front of Him. He alone is worthy of praise. When He introduced Himself to Moses at the burning bush, He said, take off your shoes because the I Am is here and the ground itself is rendered holy and requires barefooted humbleness. Humility. He's God. You have to realize with whom you're dealing. Don't associate Him with vain things or worthless things. Don't contaminate Him by associating Him with sin. He's alarming that He is God. He's not a concept, a thought, a theory, a helpful element of life. He is God. Do not Take His name in vain. Do not cause Him to be diminished. Do not lower Him. What does this look like in our day? And it would be helpful to think about yourself here. Not the other person that you saw yesterday and saw them living in some way that diminished God, but think about yourself. Do you take the Lord's name in vain by speaking of or referring to Him in general in flippant or casual or irreverent ways? 
we live in a casual day and age. If you look around at people, men hardly ever wear suits anymore. Women, if they wear dresses, are very comfortable wearing flip-flops with dresses. I saw a picture of a women's athletic team that won a national championship and got to go to the, the White House and meet the president, and several of them were wearing dresses and flip-flops to meet the president in the White House. It was, it was stunning. That's, that's what we're like today, but don't misunderstand here. This is not veering off into a, a style discussion. I'm not wearing a tie myself. But there's a connection. These things feed each other. Casual attire and a casual attitude. They're connected. And our culture today is certainly leaning heavily and all the more heavily every day towards casualness in demeanor and in attitude. And leaning strongly away from anything that sounds like respect and reverence and sober-mindedness. Which can become a huge problem as we seek to interact with God. I am not saying that we can only talk about God in low, deep tones with the thou and thy of the old King James. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we must be careful to speak of Him respectfully. And we do still know how to do that. Even if you wear flip-flops to the White House... I doubt very seriously any of us would go up to the president and say something like, Hey, Barack, dude, how's it going? We would not act like that. We know how to respectfully address people. To carry some, some sense of weightiness in our language. That idea of weightiness, that's at the root of the Old Testament word for glory. It's heaviness. That's the essence of the word for glory. Heavy. God is heavy. The opposite of light and airy and fluffy. He's heavy. Glorious. We must carry that in our tone. As Ecclesiastes 5 says, Our God is in heaven and we are on earth, so let your words be few and carefully chosen. i got to qualify that again because He is a God who is near to us. And He wants relationship with us and encourages us to come to Him and talk to Him and share our hearts with Him and even call Him Daddy. A very personal and affectionate term. That is true. We've got to hold a couple of things in tension here. But we even know how to speak to our daddies respectfully. And we always do it, but we know how to. And we must think of God like this. He is also a high king as much as He is a daddy. He is a near brother and friend and the Holy, Holy, Holy One who made everything. And we cannot, brothers and sisters, we cannot hope to accurately speak of these issues of tremendous gravity, tremendous weightiness, like the holy nature of God, the seriousness of sin, the coming judgment that is sure, the reality of heaven and hell. People's souls that hang in a balance. We cannot speak of those things effectively standing in a clown suit and telling jokes. They don't fit. People will look at you and say, like a Muslim friend of mine did, I don't think you believe it. I don't think you think it's actually that serious. 
You sing about it, it's a bright, bright, sunshiny day, and then talk about all this stuff. Those things don't fit together. I wonder if you actually believe it. I look at my own religion, and it's much more serious than yours is. Yeah, seriousness does not equal truth. But take his point. And he knew Christians. He knew a lot of us. So his comments were piercing. How do you speak about God? How do you refer to Him? When you pray in Jesus' name, have you stopped to wonder if Jesus actually agrees with you? Or are you tacking it on to the end of something that's really what you're about and taking His name in vain? Think about this. Is it you? Is God diminished in the eyes of others because of how you speak of or refer to Him? Moving on from our talk, what about our walk? We also take the Lord's name in vain, perhaps even more so, when we live in ways that defame Him, that attach sin and unrighteousness to His name. As soon as you claim to belong to God, there is an inseparable link between what people will make of Him and how you live. You cannot break that. It's there from the very beginning. From as soon as you say, I belong to Him and you take His name upon you, there's an unavoidable connection. And that connection can take several different forms. Spoken from the perspective of the person who's watching you, one, one might be called, I'll call it the, the permissive form. Where a person looks at us and says, for instance, I'll use an example of a man here. He belongs to God and he makes lewd comments about women around the office. I guess that God approves of lewd comments about women. The permissive take. Looks at the connection between you and what you're doing and, and decides that God's permissive, that He permits whatever you're doing. And God is diminished in His eyes because of how you've lived. Or perhaps it's not permissiveness. Maybe the connection takes on a sense of the of what I'll call a, a same old, same old sort of attitude. He belongs to God. He makes lewd comments just like the rest of us do. So, what's the big deal about all this God stuff? Doesn't make that big of a difference. Or maybe it takes the form of encouraging a sense of superiority in others. This guy makes lewd comments which are entirely inappropriate and I myself do not do. Why in the world would I want to take a step backwards in, into immorality and attach myself to his God? And God is diminished. Clearly not as strong and powerful as this guy's God is. Or maybe it's the form of encouraging a secular, sacred, now and later divide. This guy belongs to God on Sundays. And Monday through Friday here in the office, he makes lewd comments about women, just like the rest of us. And then says that God's going to forgive him for all of it at the end. Maybe that's how God works. I have to pay attention to him on Sunday and when I die. And in the middle, I live however I want. All of those things, and there are many more, I'm sure, but all of them 
diminish God. Bring down who He is from the high and exalted truth down to some caricature, some lie. Which one it is is going to depend on what's going on in the situation, who the people are who are watching, but it happens because we are tied to how people see His name. How we live is tied to that. Don't take His name in vain. Don't attach His name to your sin. To your unrepentant sin. Because clearly we are all going to sin. You, me, because we're sinners. So I'm not calling for some perfection or rather some pretended perfection. That would be worse. Oh, I guess God approves of hypocrisy then. No. Your unrepentant sin which you have to watch for. When you sin, when I sin, when we sin, which we will, we need to be careful realizing that God's name has now been tied to that. We need to be careful that God's name also get tied to remorse, repentance, and attempt to make things right. That we show people that yes, He cares about this. And yes, I care about this because of Him working in me. And I want to turn away from that. And I want to make it right with you because of it. That, again and again and again and again, will tell the truth about God. And it will display growth. That He is concerned with sin. And He is a God who changes and grows us and forgives us. Anything less denigrates His name and will not go unpunished. The second half of the verse. Read Ezekiel 36, where God clearly says that He punishes the nation of Israel because they have profaned His name. Read Romans 2 on the lips of Paul, where he quotes the Old Testament to chastise the church, saying, because of you, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles among non-believers. It's true. God will not tolerate this because He is so passionately concerned for His own glory. He doesn't look at His name being brought down and dragged through the mud and say, that's fine. He acts to separate His name from that which would denigrate it. Which is what stands behind the many calls for punishment and discipline in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's what stands behind the New Testament equivalent of many of those punishments, church discipline. Church discipline has many different goals. Among them, the restoration of the person who is wandering away from God willfully. But one of those goals is clearly to maintain the integrity of God's name. To separate the claim to be a Christian and the claim to just willfully be okay with walking in sin. Discipline is intended to separate those two things and say choose one or the other. You can't have both. It's God's idea. God's behind that because God will not let this condition persist. He will defend His name. We must be sure that God's name is not diminished because of us, because of how we speak, or because of how we live. And that all starts in the heart. 
because I probably have not said much that was new. I'm, I'm guessing that I didn't just say something that you, know, you thought, like, wow, I guess I shouldn't like just walk in sin. I hadn't thought of that before. I guess I should be careful in how I refer to God. That's new. Probably not. I mean, you, you probably know this. The Bible reminds you because you need to be reminded, so I'm, I'm comfortable reminding you, but I need to point something else out, that it's not just so simple to say, don't do it, and therefore we won't. It's not that simple. It begins in the heart. The reason that we have difficulty with not de- defaming God's name, not using it in vain or conversely, that we don't honor it as we should, is because often we think very little of Him. We diminish Him with our living and our speaking because He is diminished in our minds and hearts. That takes us to our second observation. The second point that I want to make here is the positive expression of the command. So, so the negative is, is negative. Thou shalt not. I mean, there's a certain bit of directness to that, is there not? Don't. But the positive is there also. And what, what should I do? Well, let me express it this way. We magnify the name of the Lord by bowing our knee to Jesus. How do we be careful to not defame the Lord's name? How? I, I want to develop this in two different ways. How, in in other words, how will I know I've done this properly? And how, in the sense of, how can I be enabled to? My answer to both of those is, by bowing the knee to Jesus. We must seek to magnify Him rather than diminish Him. And it's all about Jesus. To get our focus clear here, I want to work first on the How will I know that I have done this properly? How will I know that I have actually honored the Lord's name? You'd ask a question, who are we actually talking about in the third commandment? Clearly we're talking about the Lord. It's the Lord's name, but who's that? Well, it's the name that we're talking about, and we could go any number of places in the Bible, but I'm going to go to John 17. Jesus praying before he goes to the cross. There's a lot in John 17, but he says there, verse 11, Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. There's a lot in that chapter, as I said. There's even a lot in that verse, those couple of sentences there. But you hear the twofold repetition. Which you have given me. So we've got the name of the Lord. Jesus says that the Father has given him a name. What name is that? Throughout the whole book of John. What does Jesus keep calling himself? And he keeps getting him in trouble. He keeps calling himself the I Am. Before Abraham was, I Am. That's the name of the Lord in all capital letters. It's God's name. And Jesus says, that's who I am. That's the name that the Father has given to me. Yes, I'm a person. Yes, I have a a, a name, Jesus. And I am also fully God. I am the I am. I am the Lord. Both. 
Christ the Son is the one speaking in Isaiah 45 when He says, Turn to Me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Right at the beginning. For I am God and there is no other. By Myself I have sworn, from My mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To Me every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. Who is that? He is God and God alone. And though in the form of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, but He laid himself, laid it aside and He made Himself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant, submitting Himself to death, even death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is, here's the name, Lord to the glory of God the Father. Put that together. I know I'm hopping around a couple different passages. Put it together. Who's the third commandment pointing us towards? Don't take whose name in vain? The Lord's. Who's the Lord? Jesus. The name has been bestowed on Him, given to Him. Ergo, you cannot keep the third commandment without expressly worshiping the eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son. There are many people in our world today, many people in this valley, who talk about keeping the Ten Commandments and do not acknowledge that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, Yahweh, God eternal with no beginning and no end, everlasting Creator God. Call Him by the same name. Call Him Savior. Call Him Lord in lowercase letters. But if you do not call Him Lord in all uppercase letters, that is, the eternal God, you are breaking the third commandment. If you do not expressly, openly, wholeheartedly worship Jesus as God, you're breaking the third commandment. And God will not hold him guiltless who does so. So the first thing, how, how can I keep the third commandment? By worshiping Jesus, that is, by bowing the knee to the Son. So I have to say, in the words of Jesus... From Isaiah 45, turn to Him and be saved. Do you hear Him holding out a, a, an offer there, a hope there? He's calling you, turn to Me. Turn, turn, turn. Come to Me and I will save you. I, I don't know. I don't know everybody here. I don't know where you stand. I don't know what you think. But there's a clear divide here. And I have to inform you of your situation and make clear your breaking of the commandment of God. And I get the privilege of informing you of a hope that will save you if you turn to Him and will leave you unsaved if you do not. It is that clear. 
Not a mental understanding and acknowledgement. Jesus is real. Salvation is real. But a turning to Him that is a knee-bowing turning to Him. A submission. Not just the mind and the will. I need you. Forgive me. Save me. Pay for my sin. You humbled yourself and came to earth and went to the cross to die. That was to pay for my sin. Take it, please. Humble yourself before Him and He will save you. But if you don't, you are not delivered. And still stand as a lawbreaker under His judgment. It's the message of Isaiah. It's the message of Jesus in the New Testament. And it's good news if you turn. So I ask you, do you want to be saved or not? Don't, don't set it aside for you know, tomorrow or next week. Do you want to be saved, yes or no? Write it down on the paper in front of you. I don't know where you are. I don't know who you are, but... Make, make clear what your thinking is. Because what's going to happen right now is that there's going to be this, this movement in which you want to like turn away from it and not think about it till later. And then you'll forget it. And you'll throw away your, your note and you'll forget you even went to church today. You are required to keep the third commandment. To worship and honor God. God the Son, Jesus. And you don't. But He'll forgive you if you turn to Him and repent. So come. It's not hard. Just come. Just say, Lord, help me. Forgive me. I realize, though, that, well, I don't know everybody here, I know that most of us are past that point and and understand a lot of what I've already said. So you're thinking, how do I keep this commandment? Well, I realize that I keep this commandment by bowing the knee to Jesus. I get that. I've read Philippians 2. Maybe you hadn't seen the connection to Isaiah, but you understand that much. So for you, the second question of how, in the sense of how am I enabled to do this, because I've got this problem in my heart where I think little of Him. How am I enabled that is internally changed so that I will... Exalt the name of Jesus, the Lord, rather than diminish it. How does that happen? Let me give you three steps. Which, for some of us, should, should sound ironic because I never say that. And really, I'm not saying that today. Because the three steps still are not going to leave you in charge of the situation. It is not. There is no such thing as the Bible says, if you do A and B and C, then you will for certain come out at the end D. Because it's a work of God ultimately at the end. But there are things that you can do. You are required to move towards Him, even while He reserves the power to open blind eyes and change cold hearts. So what do you do? Three things. Read your Bible. That's new, I guess. (laughs) Read your Bible. Preach the gospel to yourself. I'll unpack these a little bit. 
And pray, pray, pray for God the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and see what is there and inflame your heart with the beauty of Christ and the wonder of His saving cross. And keep reading your Bible, keep preaching that gospel to yourself, and keep praying that God the Holy Spirit would open your eyes and soften your heart. And read your Bible. Here's how this happened for me this morning. This is out of my den this morning and slightly after 7 a.m. I'm reading through Isaiah. And I'm reading through Isaiah 15. And if you look at Isaiah 15, it's the heading says, An Oracle Concerning Moab. Not a place that one would probably select to go find uh, a Christ-exalting passage. It's the prophet Isaiah who is doing two things here. He's speaking a, a prophecy of judgment against Moab, and also this is in the, the, the Holy Book of Israel, so he's speaking to Israel, what's intended to be an encouragement as they see judgment on their enemy Moab. And if you read through the first, um, uh, the, whole, the whole chapter of chapter 15, so it's got nine verses in it, you read through all of that and the words wail and cry and weep all over the place. Because God is dealing with Moab through foreign invaders. And, but it moves right on into 16. And as you're moving through there, you still have some of the same ideas. And then verse 3 of Isaiah 16, so I'm still just, I'm just reading through this, not intending to use this in the sermon at all. I'm reading through it. Give counsel, grant justice, he's speaking to Israel, make your shade like night at the height of noon, shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, he's saying to Israel, let those who have been chased out of by my judgment, chased out of Moab and are going to flee into your land, bring them in and shelter them. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And I went like, whoa, where'd that come from? Who is that? A throne set up in steadfast love. And on it sitting in faithfulness in the tent of David. One who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness brought in by one from the tribe of David. Promised to be coming 700 years before Christ. And I read that and thought, it's Jesus. I'm reading my Bible. And God the Holy Spirit opens my eyes to it and I preach the gospel then to myself saying, I am to shelter those who are my enemies with the mindset of the fact that there is a time coming when the Messiah will walk the earth and set up righteousness and judgment. He has started that now and He will bring it to fulfillment one day in the future. Therefore, I'm not to war against my enemies, but to love them and shelter them and let Him sort them out. 
And I preach that to myself. And what wells up in my heart is worship of Christ. Rather unexpectedly. I wasn't thinking I'd find him in an oracle to Moab. But he's there. Over everything in the Bible, you read the Bible praying, Holy Spirit, would you open my eyes to see the Lord here? And who He is. To see His saving work and how glorious it is. And when He does that, what happens is you think much of Him. Or think a little bit more of Him. And I look at that and would say, I would never want this one, this one that is described in Isaiah as coming to sit on a throne of righteousness, I would never want Him to be diminished because of how I've dragged His name through unrighteousness. This one who is a great king and will sit on a throne to speak of him lightly, flippantly. I would never want to do that. Something's happened inside of me. It's changed as I've seen him in a little more clarity. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that we cannot program. But what we can do is pick up your English Bible and read it. And ask God the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to it. If you skip those two things, it's likely they won't show up. We are commanded to not take the Lord's name in vain. Which is to say, we are commanded to exalt it. And that won't happen if we think little of Him in our hearts. So we must think much of Him in our hearts. How does that happen? We go to the means and pray, pray, pray that God would open our eyes and cause Him to shine within us. And to seem as glorious to us as He actually is. And that kind of change on the inside is what fuels different living on the outside. There are a couple steps there that in the end are dependent upon God. But engage with them if you want to keep the third commandment. We're going to move towards communion right now. And communion is a wonderful place to look at God the Son and His saving work and have Him grow in us appreciation for Him. Kind of what communion's about. And so now as we move towards that, we're going to have a time of prayer. And let me encourage you, pray. And ask Him to open the eyes of your heart that you would see Him and love Him and, and treasure Him as He should be. After we prayed for a minute, then we'll move towards communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, 
Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.